find something. That, I always expect something momentous to happen when that countdown finishes. That countdown was exhilarating. Can you picture in your mind it. being on the film set and them having? Yes. A, is it the clapper they call it? Yeah. And you have to say yeah. five, four, three. Yeah. You can only mouth. Then, yeah, you we, can only mouth the last. <laughs> we all know how it goes. We are basically all film stars. <laughs> oh. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Reimagining Work from Within. I'm Laurie Bennett, and I'm coming at you from Vancouver. I have the distinct pleasure of being joined today by Carol Linnett, the co-founder of The Narwhal, which is a team of investigative journalists who dive deep to tell stories about the natural world in Canada that you can't find anywhere else. Carol is a journalist, editor, illustrator, and is the co-founder of The Narwhal. Carol has been reporting on energy and environmental politics for the last decade for outlets including Vice Canada, The National Observer, Academic Matters, and The Tai. Carol began her career writing and performing interviews for the Canada Expedition, a non-governmental sustainability initiative, and while working in dispute resolution with communities affected by resource scarcity. Carol has a master's in English literature from York University, where she studied political theory, natural resource conflict, and Aboriginal rights. She also has a master's in philosophy in the fields of phenomenology and environmental ethics and has a PhD in English and cultural, social, and political thought from the University of Victoria. When she's not on her computer, you can find Carol in some ocean, somewhere, freediving or surfing. Carol, I feel like you need a degree of a master's in English literature to pronounce the rest of your degrees. <laughs> I feel like hearing you and watching you read that out, I realize that there's a cruelty to that bio. Maybe I need to just sim simplify it. <laughs> and you did, you did wonderful. I did okay. with phen What is phenomenology? Just quickly, I know it's a side <laughs> topic. I'm sure we're all it's excited. Great. It's, it's a great question. In a, in a really general nutshell, it's the study of things and our perception of things and our conceptual relationship to things. That's amazing. I love that you can study something that you describe as, it's the study of things. Yeah. Somebody's got to study it, you know. I'm glad someone is. I'm glad you have been. And it, this is all starting to piece together the parts of your genius that I haven't yet understood. I'm now getting a clearer picture of. Oh, don't dig too deep. <laughs> Carol, welcome to our podcast. It's really great to have you here. We're going to talk a bit today about the journey that we've been on together as Within and the Narwhal, down a, a pretty mazy but pretty awesome road of exploring your purpose and vision and values as an organization and getting those embedded into the, the real fabric of what you do and how you do it. But before we jump into that, tell us a bit more about the Narwhal. I love Talking about the narwhal, so it's my my great pleasure, my my pride and joy. So the narwhal is a an independent online magazine based in Canada. We are a team of twenty three, and um, we're journalists and membership coordinators and audience editors. And our craft and our and our pride and our purpose is to tell stories about the natural world in Canada, about the environment to the environment, the communities who live in relationship with the environment, 
and the people and the places that are centered in some of the most ambitious and creative and valuable conservation efforts today in our world. And uh, we just turned five. Very, very proud of that. Uh, Thank you. We're predominantly a digital first magazine, but we do print edition once a year. And that's the place where we sort of showcase the best of of the narwhal. I have it on my desk next to me right now, in fact. And it is a thing of beauty. Thank you. And I think the it's extraordinarily inspiring, the work that you do. And having been a little bit on this journey with you, I know that so much of that comes from this group of people that you have together, who I think you refer to, what is the collective noun for, for the narwhals? Sometimes a pod? Um, sometimes a blessing. A group of narwhals is called a blessing. A blessing. And let me tell you, world, they are. And so, Carol, we're going to rewind a little bit here to, I'm trying to think when it was, but I'm pretty sure the pandemic was upon us when we met each other a couple of years ago now. And tell me a little bit about why we met. Like, what was happening with you in the organization that sort of caused you to say, hey, I think we might need to do something different here? It's it's a great question. Yes, there was so much happening. We were we were bursting at the seams in a way. I think we had we so this must have been spring of 2021 mm-hmm. is is my guess. And we had experienced some rapid growth and had hired some new staff and in every way imaginable we were just just a little bit too much overextended. But we were doing really great work. We were proud of the work and we were receiving awards. We were being asked to, you know, join partnerships. We were being asked to speak on panels. We were getting, you know, so many tips from readers about new things that were very worthy of our attention. We were receiving new funding. We were taking on new kinds of initiatives that were sort of locking us into publication schedules that we were just like really trying to keep up with. The hustle was just like extraordinarily challenging at that point. And, and I think it was really interesting. So we launched May of 2018. So this would be coming on to our third birthday at this point. And I think, Lori, in one of the first meetings we had with you, we were right in the midst of, of award season, which we're kind of just at the tail end of now. And Emma and I t- were telling you how we had won all these awards and it was, it felt so like a devastating burden. Each new accolade that we were being handed, it was just like we could not keep up with the just the weight and the pressure of what we were doing and and even our own success, which is sort of a wonderful problem to have. Can be very difficult as a founder and as a leader when you start to feel yourself really disconnect from the joy and the vision that brought you to that work in the first place. And so I feel like we were really in the crux of like a crisis in that moment. And in fact, I'll never forget it because we still refer to the actual month as awful April. I don't know if you remember that. It was a really, it was a really like, yeah, just profoundly difficult time for our organization for so many different reasons. We were empty husks of ourselves. And yet we were working at this place that was the outcome of this dream we had. And it was, and it was you know, we we talked about it being like a rocket ship to the stratosphere, or more commonly, we really described our experience as being dragged behind a bolting horse. 
And we were like, if we could just get back on that horse somehow, we know that we can, you know, work with this momentum, this incredible momentum we're experiencing. But it just in the moment felt we were almost like in a, in a place of despair, actually, which is wild to think about. It's so sad, right, that you can be just so crushed by your your own success in a way. And so we were we were right in that moment. That's that's the context when when we first started working with you. Yeah, hopeful April. And it's such an interesting space to be as a founder, because I think <clears throat> in some ways there's probably a lot of people listening going, gee, that doesn't sound so bad for me, because I'm really trying to scrape things together here to get things mm-hmm. moving. But there's a real there's a reality to and I love how you'd sort of describe the the being a victim of your own success, which then causes you to check the relationship to the joy of succeeding changes. And you start to feel the burden of that instead. And all the things, the good, I remember you speaking to all the amazing things that this was going to unlock and how horribly out of energy you felt to actually be able to take on those things you've been dreaming of. It's like your dream comes true and you just can't cope with it, which feels like a really difficult place to be as a founder, I'm sure. I think... What did what do you remember from that sense of starting to think about well what do we need in this moment like do you remember kind of what you what it felt like you were looking for as the thing that was going to help you cope with the situation you were in just then Yes I remember one thing really explicitly was this real strong desire to sort of download or externalize from our physical bodies the DNA of the narwhal. What what was it that led to this incredible publication coming to life? How was that connected to the principles through which we should operate? How should that affect how we hire? How do we share with the people who we're bringing onto our team the, the significance of you know the dream of why we do things the way we do and how that distinguishes us from other workplaces and from other publications and organizations. And actually, just a few months prior to this, we, Emma and I had both Emma Gilchrist, the other co-founder of the Narwhal, the, the genius, the this truly the, the shining star of all of this. We had been in a meeting with this incredible mentor we had been working with, and she said to us, I don't know how else to say this, but I'm going to say this to you and I want you to take it in. It is actually negligent for you to continue running your organization the way that you are because she was seeing how and um, equally distributed the work was, how Emma and I were being crushed by the weight of the responsibilities we had, that we were losing our joy. We, it was a classic recipe for burnout every possible way. But she also said, if one of you gets hit by a bus, what happens to this beautiful thing you've created? Like, this is not sustainable. It's not safe. It's not smart. You need to create a change. And we really like felt that deeply. We were, and it felt like such wonderful permission too. We had been very extremely conservative with the way we were handling our finances too. So I think we were timid to grow too fast, which is a thing that happens in our industry a lot where people grow too quickly, they overhire, and then you hear about these like, you know, devastating layoffs. And we were really nervous and gun shy in a way about growing too fast and being, you know, financially irresponsible in any way. Three years in, it's like, yes, we're doing well. 
is this going to continue? Are we a sure thing for another three years? And we felt like we were still like underdogs cobbling things together. And I think we needed to catch up with ourselves in a way and feel empowered to create the positions we need to create, hire the great people we needed to hire. And so it was, yeah, it was an important moment for us that I think in a way gave us the permission to start working with within people. It was like, we need to rely on experts. We need strategy. We need advice. And we need to take this thing that is circulating in our heads and actually get it down somewhere so that we can grow this organization in a way that feels structured. Right. Right. Yeah. And what great advice to be given in that moment, that sort of warning of, hey, the way you're behaving isn't just problematic for you, but actually it's putting your business at risk. And the counterintuitiveness, that feeling of we're literally doing everything. We're giving everything we have to give to the act of sustaining and growing and making this work and telling us that by doing that, we might actually kill it. (laughs) This just doesn't seem fair in that moment. I remember you sort of some of the conversations we had early on about that. And one of the things we talked about quite quickly was, well, how do you actually want growth to feel? How do you want it to be? And how do you, how does the growing of this organization, which has become something so huge in your and Emma's lives, how does that actually contribute into the way that you want to live those lives? And how do you sort of find some some rebalancing or some reintegration of kind of who you are and how you want to live alongside growing this phenomenally successful organization? And I just kind of curious to hear kind of what you remember of those conversations and the kinds of pictures we pulled out together and created around having a different kind of permission for yourselves around what growth could be like instead of what you'd experienced up until then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really remember this exercise we did with you and we were working on a jam board and we just had to, you know, find, find images of, of what we really wanted. And I think Emma and I both pulled in pictures of that sort of represented calmness and and sort of restorative activities. I think may, maybe it was just Emma. It might have been both of us holding pictures of surfing in the ocean. Surfing is something both of us really love. Emma's great at it. I am committed to it. And we actually, spending a lot of time surfing together was what allowed us to get into this sort of dreamscape, as we call it, to, to dream up in our wall. And I think there was a sense of space an expansiveness that we found together that allowed us to become ambitious in ways that we hadn't found previously. And in the vice grip of the moment, you know, fast forwarding three years later, we did not feel calmness and that connection to, you know, those things in the very beginning that were really driving us to do what we were doing. We also were disconnected from the work itself in a way because we weren't journalists out on the ground doing the thing anymore. And we weren't making funny explainer videos with baby goats, which was like a real career highlight for both of us. We were, you know, dealing with spreadsheets and, 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 and funding grants and dealing with HR issues and trying to hire and stuff. It just felt really grueling and not like the fun, you know, purposeful work that we were doing in the beginning. So I think for both of us, there was that. And I think we both maybe also pulled in pictures or one of us did of many hands 
there was this sense that we wanted the work to become more distributed and to become, to grow a team of excellence. And the context in which we were dreaming about this was one in which the, you know, there's this like shuddering happening in the, in the journalism world all across Canada and environmental journalists are the first to go in many cases. And so there's just a lot of talent out there. And we just thought if we could, if we can build something really great, the talent we can attract is is going to be phenomenal. And these people need jobs, they need work, and their their work is so important to Canadians right now. And so I think we just had this real dream that one day it wouldn't all be, you know, this heavy yoke on our shoulders and that there'd be many people sharing in that. And that doing the work would actually feel restorative once again, that it would be connected to purpose in the way that re-energizes you instead of just like siphoning out like your bone marrow, which is... <laughs> somehow felt in that moment right right yeah and i think through that process you came up with one of the best growth contexts that i've ever had a client come up with which was the the shift from being dragged behind bolting horse to joyfully riding the unicorn i think is where we came to wasn't it of just that sense of we've got the reins back in our hands that we're on top of things rather than being the plow behind and the the beast we're riding is something that feels beautiful and that we're proud of. And as the unicorns of the sea, you brought that forward. And I think I remember that there was something in that that articulation of that that caused a bit of an energetic shift, didn't it? In okay, well, this is giving us permission to think about growth in other ways. And I remember talking to Emma at that time and her saying. I just didn't really realize that we could decide how we want to grow as opposed to just have to keep chasing to keep up with the growth that's going on here. We can actually put some intention behind this and make some decisions that give us again a little bit more control over how we want growth to happen and feel rather than sort of being subject to these big forces of donation and desire of expectation out in the reader base and this marketplace of people who could come and join us and just feeling this kind of unending pressure of if we don't take advantage of all of that now we're missing out somehow on opportunity to be the thing that we want to be absolutely and i think from from there then the the conversation turned to what you said it's kind of well how do we how do we not extract your bone marrow from you, but sort of do that <laughs> in terms of kind of <laughs> take the DNA, the magic that had brought all of that success and articulate that out in some way so that others might understand it and be able to embody that too. And all of those hands in those images that you had, how did you, how are you going to kind of enable and empower them to be able to carry with you what it meant to be the narwhal and to put editorial content out there into the world that felt like it was yours. And that was a journey that we went on where we started to uncover a purpose for the narwhal, to articulate the vision that you wanted to move forward to, and particularly a a set of values, which is what I really want to talk about with you today, that were a way of starting to be able to talk about what it, the sort of behaviors that underpin how you do the things that you do and what makes you who you are. 
tell me a little bit about your experience of the process of kind of coming, bringing those values into fruition. Like, how did it feel? Was it a was it a bone marrow transplant? Was there was it something a little bit less invasive? Like, how did it feel? Felt felt good. It felt you know even just starting the process of workshopping this with you was an exercise in creating that space that we were desiring so deeply. It felt impossible in that moment to find an hour a week or two hours a week or whatever it was in in those beginning days just to work on talking this through because we just, you know, everything was breaking pace and to just shift out of that and just get into the space where we sort of talk about what was it in the beginning and what are the things you're most proud of and why was that so unique? And how did that really zany, hilarious, irreverent thing that went viral happen? And we just, it, you know, there, it was the whole process of going through that was one of reconnection. And I think it was therapeutic in a way because we were feeling so disconnected. So creating the space for us as leaders to remember and go through that process once again was, was really valuable in terms of that reconnection. It also felt in a way like, you know, spaghetti at the wall, because I remember in the beginning, it was like, what are like, what are the defining things, you know? And it was like, is it this? It's kind of that. But no, that's like kind of more like those guys, like the thing that's different, but uh, different about us is actually more this. And and that that was really that was really a fun process. And it was really it's so valuable to just go through that refining process, you know, for clarity. And, and you don't often you can't do that in the day to day. And, and you won't do it in the day to day. And so just going through that process and being so particular, I just remember Lori being like, what is the difference between option A and option B? And and then, you know, as we worked with you through the process, it was like, oh, these are hugely significant differences. And 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 what ended up happening was this beautiful process of sort of sedimentation where it was like, what what are the keystone pieces and then what what is built around them? And so when we ended up kind of identifying our values and we went through great exercises to do this, where it was like we sort of it was an iterative process where you saw these things come to the surface over and over again. And in the end, for us, we have these values and tucked under them our sets of behaviors. And I still really love how that happened because in the beginning, it was very difficult to see the difference between those things. And now a couple of years later, it's so clear to me why that was important and why it's helpful for bringing new staff and how it's helpful for making decisions. And I know I'm skipping ahead, but <laughs> but that process was really meaningful in ways that we couldn't really understand in the beginning there. And now it's really interesting to reflect on it, even just two years later or three years, two years later, time warp, the time warp of the last decade that happened in two years. But it's, yeah, it's really wonderful to see how your sense of helping us carve these things out based on what we were telling you, we couldn't even see that distinction in what we were telling you, but you were able to help put that into place for us. And so that was a really, going from spaghetti to the wall to these like foundational pillars of our organization now is just like, it's pretty wild to reflect on the process. Yeah, I, I think there's there's something in the, the sort of trusting of that in some ways, isn't there? Of that within that spaghetti somewhere, there's going to be value. Finding the diamonds in the spaghetti is a bit of a mixed metaphor, but there's definitely some <laughs> that would be nice. That would change would Italian dinner great. night, wouldn't it, at home? If I'd get back on carbs <laughs> every night. Yeah. Where was I going? Yeah, but I think, you know, the, what was apparent to me as we were 
in that work with you was just how clear you were on what made you who you were and that the you hadn't brought the language to it yet but there was a real felt sense of the stuff that you wanted to put forward as your values and as they started to kind of crystallize into what they've ended up as you were full of stories and examples and reasons why those were the right things and you i could tell that there was a real authenticity in what you were saying you weren't trying to build a set of values to make you look good or to kind of sound sexy out there in the values marketplace but rather these were things that that truly you could consider to be cornerstones of the way that you do what you do and reflections of what's most important to you and what your audience and the people out there who support you the community that you speak to wants and needs and treasures about the work that you do but tell us what they are and this is maybe putting okay. you on the spot but i'm pretty confident that no, you've got I this down yeah I almost brought out like a poster board, but I know this is for a podcast. So props are not particularly useful. But actually, as we're talking about this, you know, just thinking about the authenticity of this exercise and the difference between like, what are your values if you're just whispering them quietly to each other in a room versus like, what do you want to see on your website? That was actually a very different enterprise. And Really, when it was like, what do you want them to be? There's some of these, I'm still like, are we allowed to have that as one of our values? Like, okay, so our values are be bold, dive deeper, lift people up, and find beauty. Which is your favorite one, Carol? I mean, I sort of have a real soft spot for find beauty because, and you, you know this right from the beginning, but I just had such a desire for the work we were doing, which is environmental journalism, which is by its very nature difficult. Um, and we talk about destruction and disaster and despair. And I wanted us to find ways to tell those stories beautifully. I felt like that was a service to humanity, was to make those stories alluring and enticing and to draw people back into these important issues and conversations that they felt disempowered by and alienated by. And these conversations are, you know, other people are having them in, in boardrooms and, and places of power all over the place. But we wanted everyday ordinary people to, to be re re-enchanted into talking about the natural world. Um, and we often, you know, have this sort of tagline or, or little turn of phrase that we use that we tell ugly stories beautifully. And, um, and that's been really significant for us. And so this, this finding beauty is for me so much more than aesthetic preference. It's really, there's a radical political sense to which we want people to see this <clears throat> and we want them to want to look more than other things. And there's, there's a sense of re-empowering people when, when we do that. And also we're telling stories of, you know, people who are going through really difficult things. And if you're, if you're a politician, if you're a premier or the prime minister, you have great high quality photos taken of you all the time doing all the things. But if you are living in a remote First Nation and your community is being flooded again, you're dealing with successive years of dangerous health impacts of poor infrastructure. Is anyone there to take a beautiful, powerful portrait of you? The answer is no. 
And so there's a, there is a power dynamic that is at play. And we really believe working with visual storytellers, photojournalists to go to these places to tell these stories in a beautiful ways is really important. Yeah. You don't have to spend too long reading your stories or absorbing the imagery that comes with them to see how powerfully that value shines through into not just the way I think a lot of people when you talk about values assume that it's those are the things which sort of shape the way that we are with each other or you know in its least advanced sense kind of the way that we decorate the office and the Mm -hmm. rituals that we hold and they don't necessarily imagine that values grow their tentacles right into the very work that you do when they're done right. They describe not just kind of what makes our culture interesting, how we do the work that we do in a way that makes us successful and that brings us a sense of joy in what we do. And I know that you've taken those values and I want to hear some stories from you quickly about kind of how you're seeing those showing up inside the organization now. But I know that one of the things you've done that I'm super proud to see you do is you really quickly, having defined them, found a way to have them become the blueprint for how you do your editorial work. And I just want mm-hmm. you to speak a little bit, if you can, to kind of how you made that connection and what that, how that's working for you right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a great question and one we yeah, we're benefiting basically every single day from having these written down in a way that we can reflect on them and, and incorporate them into these big decisions, big and small decisions that we find ourselves making every single day. As everyone knows, you know, newsrooms are selective, editors are selective. There's always some human somewhere deciding what a headline says and what stories are being to the public. And and it's no different at the normal. We take that responsibility really seriously. And we there are so many important environmental stories across Canada, far, far, far more than we could ever possibly tell, which means we have to go through this fil- filter process and this process of selection every single day with our team. And so as we're doing that, what we found is that actually like looking back at our values is really helpful for us in terms of being decisive about where we're going to spend our time, energy and resources, and also how we're thinking about the communities that we're reporting within and reporting on behalf of as well. So for example, being bold. So that, that's the value. And, and the set of behaviors that we've sort of tucked underneath is swim against the current, bravely reimagine what's possible, and be fearlessly authentic. So a way that that may show up in our editorial decision making is looking at what's happening elsewhere in the journalistic world. How is a story being covered every other news topic? How is a story being misrepresented or underrepresented? How can we as an organization sort of be bold in the face a moment, a news moment, for example, and tell a story a totally different way? A really specific example of this is the Fairy Creek blockades that happened in the summer, like 2020 to 2021. And this was has, has now become the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. It was just like hundreds, thousands of people were flocking to these remote logging roads, setting up blockades and encampments to stop the this old growth forest from being logged. 
And there was some tension under the surface of the story because the territory of the First Nation on whose which this forest was located is the Apache First Nation. And in that moment, they were not doing any media interviews. And so this story was just exploding in the news. The RCMP showed up with incredible resources and force and just started arrest, performing arrest after arrest after arrest. More than a thousand people were arrested, you know, over a span of months. The activists were engaging in like more extreme tactics. Every week that was going by, they were creating these teepees and hanging themselves up from these sort of teepee structures 25 feet in the air, making it very difficult for the RCMP officers to safely arrest them. Just a lot of like really creative environmental activism was was ongoing. And it was a very sexy, fiery news moment. And yet no one had actually heard from the First Nation who, you know, was located very nearby. The actual reservation was nearby. They had a little local mill nearby. And we were really sensitive about how to report on the story without actually hearing from the nation themselves. And so Sarah Cox, our, one of our BC reporters, just really quietly, patiently, and, and consistently got to work, like trying to find a way to build some trust and to basically have an invitation into the community. And eventually we got and we ended up publishing this really wonderful feature about the Patchadat First Nation, their relationship with that forestry and how an Indigenous community that for so long had been denied the opportunity to participate in the economics of their own territory had slowly, slowly begun to build up a forestry industry for their community. And they were able to build a, a lodge and create some small stores for local ecotourism, a, a small mill. And it really was the story of sort of economic sovereignty for this nation that had who who for which decisions about what happened in that area had been denied to them. And in, in in a critical way, many of these activists moving in were continuing that denial. And it's a complicated story for environmentalists. It's complicated for people who are devastated at the loss of biodiversity and the just clear cutting of old growth, the last remaining old growth in this province. People are, have, feel like they have a duty to humanity to protect these last stands of epic ancient forests. And yet it was coming into direct conflict with another common environmental value, which is to support Indigenous communities in self-determination and governance. And so Sarah ended up getting the story and writing the story, and it was just like very controversial. And we had people who were really upset with us for shining a light on this incongruity that was very uncomfortable for the environmental community, especially in a moment when they had actually drawn the nation's attention to a major environmental issue. Is that the moment in which environmental journalists should be, wait, there's a real problem here we need to talk about in a different way? Sarah ended up winning an award for that. It was just Taylor Rhodes did the photography. It was so sensitive. It was so beautiful. It was really profound in the moment, and it was very much swimming against the current in a lot of ways. And so, but I feel like we felt comfortable in the fact that we were living our values in that moment. And, and it was such an important story and one that needed to be told and it sparked really important conversation. So that that's an example of how a moment like that, where it's really difficult to make a decision, there's lots of pressure, there's lots of momentum. All these other news outlets are in our turf, you know, telling environmental stories. And it's like, what do we want to do? And it's like, maybe we actually just 
stop for a minute, think about how we do this and try to take a different tack. And, and that would prove to be really, really valuable for us. And we still talk about that story. And in fact, when we're hiring, we ask people, you know, what's a story that really stands out for you at the Narwhal? And like Sarah's story, Patchy's story comes time and time again. It's really like made an impression on, on journalists and young journalists who want to do meaningful in-depth work. Ah, it's amazing. And I hear so many of your values actually shining in that one. There's the swimming against the current, there's the lifting people mm -hmm. up and the pri the priority that you gave there to kind of finding the underrepresented voices and giving them the microphone in a different way. There's the diving deep into the, not just the facts of the story, but into the relationship and the trust that needs to be built in order to build those kinds of things. And there's, you know, to reach right back to your purpose, which is to use the power of journalism to bridge divides, you know, finding mm. those moments where there is an, an incongruence in things and saying, hey, well, how do we actually join these ideas together in a way that makes sense? And I think that takes such skill, but I love how you're, how you're using your values to help you navigate the complexity in that and make some decisions around this is something that we need to write and there's a way for us to write it that is going to make it ours. Yeah. Absolutely. Where do you find yourself now? You know, we, here we are a few years on from that, from that creating of the values and a, some time on as well from the writing of that story, for example. I had the pleasure of coming to join you and the whole team for the first time a couple of weeks ago on Salt Spring Island for your very first ever team retreat. And I remember in the planning of that, I had this great idea for how we were going to get back around your values. And you basically said to me, I don't think we need to do that. We, we, we really, really know what these are and we go through them all the time. And I, I thought, good and order, that might be the first time a client's ever said that to me. It didn't surprise <laughs> me, of course, but I'm curious about kind of how are you, how are you noticing them live in the team right now? Your team grew fast in the last year. And I just, that, that idea that they all have somehow internalized this intrigues me. And I want to know how you've managed that. Yeah, well, I mean, just like thinking about the growth. So it's kind of interesting because the the horse slash unicorn never stopped bolting. You know, it was like that growth was just happening to us. But as we were able to sort of codify in this way, like the, the narwhal values and our sense of like who we are and what we're doing, that we immediately use that to build out our hiring practices and our onboarding. And like that was really the this the sort of movement of this work, like into the the sort of structure the organization as we grew, which absolutely fundamentally changed the way it felt to grow. It didn't feel like chaotic scattershot. It was like we were putting in one block after another. And the result is this like incredible team of people that we've amassed that you got to meet on Salt Spring. And and yeah, when when we were talking about, you know, how can how can we work with within people in the context of all of us being together? Because, you know, we're primarily engaging in digital work, the digital workplace of Slack. We have little offices here and there, but this is our first time all being together as, you know, human beings. We really want to prioritize, like, just joyfully being together because that's such a rarity for us. And I was telling you, Lori, that, you know, some of our staff actually have the values printed up on the office wall. And when they're talking about stories, they'll all, like, sit back and look at the values. And so we really didn't need a refresher. 
on the values. But but what we really wanted to do, and this was such a joy to do, was to open up that dreamscape again and get into, you know, that visionary place where we're outside of, you know, the the busyness of deadlines and news events happening and, and all the things and just create some space to be like, what are the things we've done that have made us the most proud? Where have we really shown up? What do we want to do more of? Where do we want to see the narwhal in five years? How can we really live these values? And and that was really meaningful to do with all of our staff. And it, 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 to me, it was an opportunity to really just build back in those those values in a in a way that connects to the vision of what we could be in the future reconnecting to those in order to have a vision of the future because it's another thing when you grow you have a bigger team you have different imaginations you have different skill sets you know there's diversity in many different ways with with a diverse team and that is that can also be difficult to wrangle or it can actually be a total skill but you want to have focus and the focus is not to restrict people it's to capacitate people and to protect people from a thousand things we can do and how burnout is for all of us if we try to do them all. So how can we like really get a sense of like what is unique that the narwhal can offer in in the journalism world? And what is the, you know, the impact that we can have on our readers and our country and environmental issues? And how do we really like get a sense of ourselves? Like if we were being the most possible badass we could be, what is it going to look like for us in five years? And that was like such a fun Thing to just get into that headspace with the team and, and allow everyone to sort of dream really ambitiously together. And uh, yeah, and you know, it's there's there's also with the I, I think I had expressed to you, Lori, that I had this like tiny insecurity about like having a big expansive conversation and getting the sense of like, let's all dream together, and then being the person who said, But we can't actually do anything, <laughs> you know, and it's so like yeah. How do you facilitate as a leader a conversation where you want to bring people into that space, but you don't want to also have no guardrails because you want it to be meaningful, you want it to be real? And I feel like the values become these these meaningful guardrails, not in a restrictive way, but in a way that allows us to channel deeper into the things that make us great, make us unique, and and truly have drawn a lot of these people to our organization, right? They saw what we were doing. They saw that there was something different. They saw that, you know, we were producing journalism that was really rare in Canada. And and a lot of people felt compelled. They were like, I want to be a part of the team. So the hiring and bringing people in and connecting to them, that it all creates this really beautiful ecosystem where we can really be, we can really trust each other because we have this shared sense of purpose. And there's like a freedom that comes with that in a, in a wonderful way. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about it, Carol, and I love that the, I want to talk to you about it forever if we can, but we can't. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something definitely in the, in that sense of kind of, as a as a leader and as a founder, giving yourself permission to dream a little bit mm-hmm. around what you most want and to make that feel like a valid and important use of your time. And starting to then see what can land from that, that you can pull into the the way that you want your organization to be in the, the way that you want it to, to grow and shape. But I'm, by way of kind of a r- wrapping up the conversation here, what I'd love to ask you is standing here today in 2023, 
give some advice back to the Carol in 2021 around what she should do or think or try now kind of what have you what have you taken from this journey that you've been on that you wish you had known then or the, the advice you would give yourself from the with the benefit of hindsight well good question i think I would tell myself to trust my instincts and for, for both Emma and I to, to trust our instincts. I feel like we were desperate to prove ourselves well beyond it being necessary. And I don't know if that's because we had an underdog complex or because we were women in the industry or we were coming into the journalism world from an unconventional space, which is, you know, digital first and, and online and independent and not at all having the hallmarks of, you know, traditional New York Times journalism, but the ambitions to do the same kind of work, same caliber of work. I think, yeah, I would absolutely say like you need to trust your instinct and you have something to offer and don't be afraid to offer it. That would definitely be one thing. And then another thing that I think I might say to myself is, you may, you are a leader, even if you don't maybe feel like you are one yet. If you are leading, you are a leader and your experience matters to the conversation of leadership. You're, it, it's not, it's not illegitimate because it doesn't look like what your ideal picture of leadership looks like. And probably a lot of other leaders in other capacities and organizations are struggling with very similar things. So I think I think there is also that sense of like, we don't know how to do this. <laughs> like no one taught us how to do this. And actually in some ways we still feel that way, right? We didn't actually grow up and come up in the industry with the kind of mentorship that we are now trying to provide and the type of leadership that we now want to embody. And so the only way to deal with that is to be more authentically yourself, to just lean into that because you're not going to become, and Lori, I feel like I'm like talking, I'm, I'm saying back to you things that you actually said to me in, in, in leadership sessions. <laughs> but I feel like you really encouraged me. Like, for example, my favorite value is finding beauty. And I, I had this sense of like, I want to build this into the narwhal. This is so important to me. And it's very much not a budgeting and spreadsheet and fundraising skill set. It's something totally different. I think I had a sense of like, is this a less valuable asset than other assets? This is not a hard skill. This is a soft skill. And Lori, you were just like, no such thing. And like, you're, you, these are powerful forces that are growing your organization and you should never like shy away from being passionate about and being a thing that you can really bring to your organization and build it up. And I like needed to hear that in, in that moment. And so. I feel like that was, you were saying, you're a great leader. You are a leader. Just be yourself. Be more yourself. Dig into that and accept that and grow through. And that is actually so worthy and so valuable and a part of the reason why you're doing what you're doing and why it's been successful. And like that, I needed to hear that so much in that moment. So yeah, I guess, I guess it's, you know, we all, we all need to find our authentic selves no matter what, what we're doing, right? And to be comfortable with it and, and to accept ourselves and to lean into our strengths and be okay offering the thing that we can offer to the world. Incredible. Well, that's a beautiful thing to hold 
Carol, and you are a beautiful leader with a beautiful organization. And it's been a real privilege, not just to talk to you about it today, but to have observed and in some points contributed to that journey that you've been on in these last few years, because the work you do is important and the way that you're doing it is inspiring. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you for all you've helped us accomplish. It's, I feel like we would be in a different place if we hadn't crossed paths with you and that oh so awful April. <laughs> One of our values is learn together. And I think the process we've been through together has taught us plenty from your side as well about what it means to grow an organization that is here to make an impact in the world and that really cares about how the people in it feel in that quest, essentially. But thank you for your time today. And if you're listening to this out there, get yourself to the Narwhals website, read everything. Be better still, become a member. You won't regret it. It's really fantastic stuff. All right. Carol, you're amazing. Thank you for being so eloquent and articulate and all the things that I am not finding the ability to be in this afternoon. Well done. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed learning about our purpose, vision, and values journey with the Narwhal. You can find more information about Carol and the Narwhal at their website, thenarwhal.ca. Tune into our podcast every month for more episodes on what's happening in the culture and leadership space, what's on the minds of leaders committed to change in our community, and other future of work content you crave. Reimagining Work from Within is available wherever you listen to podcasts.